This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tonight on 360, our closest look yet from inside Gaza with Israeli troops uncovering Hamas's underground infrastructure and a U.S. official saying that one Hamas command post is under Gaza's main hospital. Also tonight, day one of the former president's defense in New York's civil fraud case with Donald Trump Jr. taking the stand, calling his dad a, quote, artist with real estate. We begin, though, keeping them honest. What the former president is now saying about his opponents and how his allies are reportedly planning to target them. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. By now, it is no secret that the former president lies nearly all the time. What's also becoming clearer, though, is that when he talks about what he would like to do to people he perceives as his enemies, he's often not lying. There's new reporting to that effect tonight, and coupled with several other recent reports, it suggests that he meant what he said over the weekend when he said this. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections. Vermin, the former president, on Veterans Day, no less, he went on to say, quote, the threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Our threat is from within. After that, he praised foreign dictators, calling the leaders of Russia, China, and North Korea, quote, capable, competent, smart, and tough. The Washington Post story on his speech ran under the headline, Trump calls political enemies vermin, echoing dictators Hitler, Mussolini. CNN presidential historian Tim Naftali telling the Post, the language is the language that dictators use to instill fear. That's what dictators do. Other historians and scholars of fascism echo that assessment. To which the former president's campaign spokesman responded in words that also kind of sound an awful lot like things dictators might say. Quoting now, those who try to make that ridiculous assertion are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything because they are suffering from Trump derangement syndrome and their sad, miserable existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. So crushed, vermin, enemies within. It's probably the starkest, clearest version of other sentiments he's expressed in the past year. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. He's a warrior. He's never served, but he's a warrior. The former president back in March, it is tempting to write off what he just said as, as some kind of a shtick, like lock her up or build a wall or reciting lines from that poem, The Snake. The concern, however, is that his motivation for retribution is now connected to a dehumanized target, people he calls vermin, and is coupled with the means for making it happen. He's the leading Republican candidate for president. There's new reporting on that in Axios under the headline, Trump allies pre-screen loyalists for unprecedented power grab. Quoting from it now, if Trump were to win, thousands of Trump first loyalists would be ready for legal, judicial, defense, regulatory, and domestic policy jobs. His inner circle plans to purge anyone viewed as hostile to the hard-edge authoritarian-sounding plans he calls Agenda 47. 
Separately, The Washington Post, citing people who have spoken to him, reports the former president and his allies have begun mapping out specific plans for punishing critics and opponents, with him, quote, naming individuals he wants to investigate or prosecute. Something he talks about out loud and doesn't even bother denying. They call it weaponization, and the people aren't going to stand for it. But yeah, they have done something that allows the next party. I mean, if somebody, if I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. That sounds reasonable. Back during the Nixon administration, then Attorney General John Mitchell, who later went to prison for his role in the Watergate affair, told reporters to watch what we do, not what we say. That was his way of kind of reassuring the public that some of candidate Nixon's harsher campaign trail rhetoric would not become administration policy. The question tonight, how comforting would those same words be now? Joining us now is Axio CEO and co-founder Jim Vandehei. So Jim, walk us through your reporting. Uh, tell us more about what the former president's allies are actually planning. Yeah, if you go back last time when he won, there was a lot of the same language, a lot of this bombast, a lot of the tough guy uh, routine. But when he got into office, he was surrounded by people who would put restraints on him. And he didn't really understand how many levels of the bureaucracy could gum up kind of some of his instincts and often his worst instincts. They learned from that. And, and what we found is when you talk to people at the Heritage Foundation, when you talk to people around Donald Trump, who used to work for Donald Trump, who understand the machinery of government, they've now put together a very well-oiled machine one year in advance of potentially winning the election that's allowing them to vet and screen people for their loyalty to Trump and their belief in stretching the rule of law in ways that Donald Trump would like them to stretch it if he were in office. And the reason that I think this story is very important is it's one thing when he uses this language and then doesn't put it into action. But when you listen to him and he tells you what he's going to do, punish political enemies, round up illegal immigrants, you may potentially get rid of a million or so people who live in the United States, uh, try to maybe even go after flag officers and generals who he doesn't consider uh, to pass the loyalty litmus test. If you know how government works and you can figure out how to purge 10, 20, 30,000 people from all those positions that make activities like that possible, that turn those policies or those ideas into action, you could have a much different administration. And really, you would see restraints lifted that we've had on the previous 46 presidents. Now, anybody who's a Trump supporter who's listening to this are like, hell yes, we love that. That's what we want. We want the administrative state purged and we want a, a new order. We want sort of the, the tough guy, uh, sort of the strong man routine because they feel like crime is high and immigration is surging. But I think if you're not a Donald Trump supporter, you're concerned because we this would be uncharted territory. We're talking about doing things that he's saying. We're not saying this is anonymous sources. He's saying this. These are the things that he's saying he's going to do, and they're going to have the machinery to do it. And I think that just shows the stakes of the election. And I wouldn't fall for this stuff where people think, ah, he's just surrounded by clowns. Right. There's some clowns around him, no doubt about it. But there's going to be some really serious people who are involved in this process, who understand government, who are going to have a government in waiting, ready to roll. The, the Trump campaign has put out a statement saying in part, quote, policy recommendations from external allies are just that recommendations. Who are the groups who are pushing this overhaul and how close are they to the former president? I mean, is uh, it the Heritage Foundation? Close. 
Heritage Foundation is definitely doing a lot of the work, a lot of the vetting. They're at, they've sent out questionnaires. They've already talked to us uh, 4,000 uh, different potential applicants, asking them their favorite political figure, their, their favorite political book, what is their uh, ideology. But then you look at the people who are advising both the Heritage Foundation and some of these other outside groups that are involved, and they're all the Trump people, right? Johnny McEntee, who is the head of uh, presidential personnel, who's really one of the architects of trying to figure out the purge in the latter days of the first term of the Trump presidency, is an advisor uh, to these efforts. Uh, Stephen Miller uh, talks with these people uh, all the time. So sure, like, yes, the Heritage Foundation, what they'd say is this will be available to anyone but everyone knows that Donald Trump is likely to win the nomination, and they know that they can't make the mistake that they made before, which is just roll into town and not have a team ready to rock and roll. They're going to have it this time, and I think we're, we'd be pushed almost instantly into our chartered territory. Yeah, I do think the second term, if he were to win, would be much more like the final days. Of, of the Trump presidency than the first two years, really trying to push the boundaries, really trying to see if you can stretch the rule of law to do things, whether it's punishing political enemies or getting rid of people who you don't feel uh, share your political beliefs, punishing uh, media entities uh, how would that, that report things you don't like. How would that work? I mean, at the, like the Department of Justice, yep. I mean, you have, you know, career law enforcement people. I mean, how would something like that work at the DOJ? Right, at any of the agencies, so basically, not to get too in the weeds, but there's one of the ideas that they had at the end of the presidency was this idea of, of, of recategorizing uh, people in the government as Schedule F, which would allow them basically to get around union laws, get around things that make it harder to fire people who are kind of permanent civil servants that are in government. And that's what much of government is. You, you hear about cabinet secretaries, you know the president, you know the vice president. A lot of the work, at whether it's at DOJ or whether it's at the Department of Homeland Security, is done below that. It's done yeah. by people who often will serve both parties. Well, if you can suddenly just in mass get rid of them, which they would try to do, maybe the courts step in and say you can't do it. Maybe they say you can. There's a big debate about whether or not he could do what he wanted to do under Schedule F. A lot of people think he could. But even if he didn't, as long as you have the people waiting, you can reassign anybody right. that you want to reassign. You can put people in uh, the gigs that, that, that you know have the power that support uh, your agenda. And I think that's what would be radically different this time from last time. Because for yeah. everyone who didn't like Donald Trump or if you liked Donald Trump and you wanted more of it, the truth is he wasn't very good at governing, particularly in the early years, because he didn't have people who shared his philosophy around him, and he didn't understand how to pull the different levers of government. And Trump himself has no interest in this. His brain doesn't work that way. He's not sitting here thinking about, well, who am I going to put where, and how is the second term going to work? Yeah. He's very thematic, and he, he loves the, the rhetorical uh, part of the job. But beneath him, there's going to be a much bigger, well-oiled, uh, sort of pre-screened, pre-trained group of people ready to come in. Mm. Jim Van Dyke, it's fascinating. Thanks so much. Thank still, you. Still to come tonight, the eldest son of the former president took the witness stand today as the defense begins in its case in that civil fraud trial in New York. He called his father a visionary in the world of real estate. The judge has already said his dad persistently committed fraud. We'll have more details on that ahead. And what it's like on the ground in Gaza, what Senior Nick Robertson saw there today. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. 
With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All there is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Former president's eldest son took the stand for the defense today in the civil fraud trial against himself and his brother and father and called his dad a visionary and an artist with real estate. The trial is now in its seventh week with allegations that the Trumps inflated asset prices to secure better financing and insurance terms. The judge already has ruled that the former president and his co-defendants, including Trump Jr., committed, quote, persistent and repeated fraud. Kara Scannell joins us now with more of today's testimony. So what stood out to you in his testimony today? So Donald Trump Jr. was on the stand for about three hours today, and much of his testimony was like a promotional video for the Trump organization. He described how he said his father was a visionary. He saw things that people couldn't see, and he was an artist. So they went through more than a dozen of the properties and showing glossy photos of them on the screen in the courtroom. And Donald Trump Jr. would describe how he said his dad would take a dilapidated building and turn it into a spectacular residence, how he would take a swampland in Florida and turn it into a spectacular golf course. And now he took the old post office building in Washington, D.C., which Trump Jr. described as a war zone and transformed that into one of the finest hotels in the world. So a lot of bravado, a lot of pitchiness and, and the use of spectacular by my count at least 15 times. Now, he did say that he took one thing he took umbrage was with the value of Mar-a-Lago, which is a tax assessment is about 18 million dollars. This is something that Donald Trump, his father, has been voicing a lot of criticism about anytime he's walking in and around the courtroom. And so Don Jr. was saying that the atrium in Mar-a-Lago alone would cost $18 million today to build. So trying to make the point that these values, the Trump touch, was something that would have um, justified some of the valuations that they put on this. But they didn't get into the specifics company by company of the valuations. This was really more of an exercise of allowing him to describe the, the Trump brand. He described it as a family business and to put the gloss on with the transformations that they made. And the judge had given them some leeway in this. The attorney general's office objected to this presentation, and the judge told the attorney generals, you've had six weeks to put on your case. He's giving them time to put on theirs. Anderson? Who else is the defense expected to call? So over the next few days, we're expected to hear from some expert witnesses who will testify about real estate. They also said they will recall some of these Trump organization executives in the finance department. Also today saying that Eric Trump will be back on the stand, and it's very likely the former president will also make a return to the witness stand. Anderson? All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Former federal prosecutor Jessica Roth is here. She's now a professor at Cardozo School of Law. Do you think his testimony helped? 
I think it was largely irrelevant. Um, I think the judge let him talk because he's giving the defense the opportunity to make their case. And he's clearly very sensitive to being viewed by an appellate court as being arguably biased in favor of the government. But nothing that Don Jr. said today uh, goes to the heart of the case in terms of the specifics about whether those statements of financial condition were fraudulent or not. And the judge has already ruled in that partial summary judgment motion that objectively those valuations in the statements um, were fraudulent. So there was nothing specific about Don Trump's junior. It was sort of long on superlatives and sort of sweeping statements, nothing very specific. Arguably, it may have hurt him because, as I understand it, he may have repeated some specifics that were actually wrong, like the number of floors in one of the properties. Mm. Um, so it may actually have been counterproductive. And both Donald Trump Jr. and uh, Eric Trump have distanced themselves from these financial statements to, to, to the extent or they, they've tried to at least. Eric's, Eric Trump is going to take the stand uh, as well what do you expect from, I mean, do you expect the same sort of thing from his testimony? It's hard to know what to expect. It may be the same kind of sort of grandiose statements about the value of the company, the value of the assets from their perspective. If there's any legal relevance to these kinds of sort of statements of superlatives and, and their belief in the or their implicit belief in the value of it, maybe it goes to the question of intent, because the judge still does have to make a finding about whether these individuals acted with intent to defraud others. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps by putting on this presentation, they're demonstrating their good faith belief in sort of how wonderful the assets were. Um, that could be a reason to, for them to, to, to rely on this testimony and the presentation in this uh, sort of glossy uh, presentation didn't, didn't, didn't the the when the former president testified earlier he alluded to bankers testifying in his defense are there going to be bankers or have they called bankers so not yet. I mean, the defense just started right. this presentation today. I'm really looking to see if they do call those bankers. Uh, what the former president essentially promised is that those people would take the stand, the witnesses from the banks, and say, we didn't rely on the statements of financial right. the, the condition. The financial statements didn't really matter exactly. in our valuations. We did our own. Which would go to the materiality question, which is one of the additional elements that the judge has to rule on for the remaining causes of action. Uh -huh. um, so I'm really keenly interested to see whether, in fact, the defense will be able to put forward witnesses who would make those statements on behalf of the banks. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, Jessica, thanks so much. Appreciate My it. Pleasure. Roth. New reporting from Gaza and fresh evidence that Hamas is using hospitals for cover. That's ahead. We have new reporting tonight on the fighting in Gaza that challenges any easy assumptions about it. This includes what CNN's Nick Robertson saw today embedded with the IDF deep inside the territory. Witnessing destruction as bad as Nick, a reporter with more than three decades of experience covering conflict, says he's ever seen, as well as evidence that Hamas is using hospitals to shelter command bunkers, weapons, and possibly hostages. Earlier today, President Biden said hospitals, quote, must be protected, but then later an administration spokesman acknowledged what Hamas is doing complicates that effort. It makes it much harder for any military force uh, to go after those targets uh, because the hospital itself ought to be, as the president said, ought to be protected. So he's really talking about this uh, incredibly difficult conundrum that Israeli military forces are facing right now. That reaction was prompted by what CNN's Nick Robertson saw today with the IDF forces in Gaza. He joins us shortly. Joining us now, though, is Washington Post national security reporter Joby Warwick, who shares the byline on a new exclusive on what Hamas had in mind beyond the October 7th massacre, namely a second phase with deeper attacks into Israel. He's also the author of the remarkable book, Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS, and we're glad he could join us tonight. So, Joby, this is a fascinating article that you've written. Because of the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the images of the suffering, which is clearly taking place, especially around hospitals and in hospitals, the international pressure on Israel 
is mounting. From your reporting, I mean, this is exactly what Hamas wanted and planned for. Yeah, and I think that picture is becoming very clear for us now. I mean, Hamas wanted to see some hostages. They they see value in, in, in obtaining hostages for, for swapping with, with prisoners that the Israelis are holding. But that wasn't the, the main point. I think that Hamas, as we're seeing it now, really wanted to, to shake up the region, wanted to put the Palestinian resistance movement, it was something, you know, in their terms, back on the agenda to get people talking about this and thinking about this. And as our reporting shows, they really expected the Israelis to hit back hard, maybe not quite as hard as they did, but hard enough to, to bring world opinion down on Israel, which is sort of a second phase of this we're seeing unplaying now. Nobody really talks as much about October 7th anymore. The focus is on what Israel, Israel is doing in response. And that works very well from Hamas's point of view. It changes the subject and they're very happy with that. Well, I mean, it just, you know, let's just pause on that for a moment, meaning they planned this massacre. They committed the, the slaughter of, of men, women and children, 1,200 or so uh, in Israel. They did not build any bomb shelters for their own people, knowing that Israel would respond. They did not attempt to do anything to protect their own, the, their own citizens, uh, Palestinians in Gaza. They wanted this response by Israel. They, they, I mean, they have publicly said on, on Arabic channels about, you know, embracing martyrs, wanting martyrs and, and being, I mean, they did nothing to protect their people. Yeah, they're they're very proud, and they say this as you said publicly. We we are all about martyrs. We want want to create martyrs. It's, it helps our our cause. Uh, and you're absolutely right about this. I mean, Hamas knew this this counterstrike was going to be coming. So obviously, they stockpiled you know uh, food and water and and uh, fuel for themselves. You know, but nobody else in Gaza got this warning. Nobody else was told, well, you ought to pick up some medicine because we're going to be under a siege for a while, or you ought to make sure that you got uh, plenty of, of fuel for your generator. The people of, of Gaza, the two million folks who live there and, and have to sort of live under these conditions, were not warned at all. And they're the ones that are paying the price for it, that right now. It's and also, it does it seem to fit very well with, also, with Hamas's plan. I mean, Hamas controls the images which come out of Gaza. I mean, any cameraman who works in Gaza knows where you point the where you're allowed to point the camera and where you're not allowed to point the camera. Obviously the civilian death toll is horrific and that is th the major story there. But the other story is Hamas doesn't exist in any video from Gaza. I mean if you're looking at the images we're looking at right now, uh, these are not, you don't see any tunnels. You don't see any rockets being fired, any locations of rockets because if you're a cameraman in Gaza, you cannot videotape that. You can't point the yeah, camera at Hamas. Absolutely. And it's been striking to me as well that, that Hamas has sort of disappeared from the scene. We see very little of them. We see very little of the fighting that they're doing. Yeah, it's the just like they don't exist. Very little of the hostages. Yeah. And hostages as well. If they, you know, there were originally some talk about executing hostages or parading them out in some way, that would be bad for Hamas because it would swing public opinion against them. So you don't see the, the hostages. They've disappeared as well during this, this debate. Part of your Washington Post uh, piece includes reporting about what more uh, the Hamas gunmen had planned for. I mean, that, that the, the terror attack wasn't just supposed to be, or there's evidence now, according to intelligence officials you've spoken to, that it wasn't just going to be in the kibbutzim along the border. They wanted to try to get as deep as possible. Yeah. We're still trying to piece together exactly what Hamas had in mind, but there are a few intriguing 
bits of evidence. And one of them is the fact that some of these groups, some of the units that went to the south and to the east, had enough material, had enough uh, food, had enough weapons and gear for uh, several days. So they weren't planning just to, to run out and get some hostages and come right back out again. And some of the maps that, that, that have been described to us uh, indicate that some of these, these units were planning to go or were potentially able to go as far as the West Bank. They were halfway there already. They went 15, 20 miles into Israel. Another 20 miles, they would have been at the, at the West Bank border. And you can imagine what that would mean symbolically sort of to link up with the other Palestinian faction and to uh, perhaps draw them into the fight or make that part of this, this, this effort that they were putting together. Didn't happen, but they were clearly at least thinking about that. The other thing, I mean, this psychic blow uh, to the Israeli population about their own security, about the capabilities of the IDF, the capabilities of the intelligence services in Israel. Can you just talk about what you have learned about in preparations for October 7th, how Hamas was able to avoid the you know, surveillance and, and tapping of communication networks? One of the most fascinating things that, that we found was this was really a deception operation as much as anything else. And the preparation for this goes back probably a couple of years, because since 2021, Hamas hasn't really engaged with the Israelis. They've, they've been sort of talking, uh, you know, you know about, about building and about making things better for, for people inside Gaza. Uh, but not uh, taking in, in sort of rocket fire, which some of their allies did, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and others would occasionally fire missiles or fight with Israelis on the border, but not Hamas. Hamas seemed to be retreating from this, you know, kind of bellicose position that they've had for the last couple of decades. And that was important for the Israelis. And, and we talked to Israeli officials who said, we it, Hamas seemed to know what we wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that Hamas was not interested in war anymore. They, they were interested in in development, and we were Israel was going to help them with that. And so they were quite surprised. And and just um, looking back at it now, really see that they were fooled by this. That Hamas played them very well, and all the time that these sort of overtures of of, of peacefulness and and just you know walking away from 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 war, uh, they were planning the whole time. They were studying what they were going to do. They were drawing up the maps and, and getting drone footage in some cases to some of these kibbutzim that they ended up attacking all the time, preparing for a really big attack while convincing the Israelis they had nothing like that going on. Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Joby work. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Pleasure. As we mentioned, CNN Zink Robertson spent the day with the IDF forces in Gaza, where he saw not just an extensive destruction, but far more than that. We should note that he was under IDF escort at all times. CNN did not submit its script or footage. The IDF has retained editorial control over the final report. Nick is back in Israel, joins us from Storot. So Nick, as we said at the top of the program, you said this was the most extensive damage you've ever seen in more than 30 years covering conflict. Talk about what, what you saw. Hey Nick, can you hear me? Clearly we're having trouble getting in touch tech with Nick. We'll try to do that. We'll take a short break, we'll be right back. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing, 
This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We've reestablished contact with Nick Robertson, we think, in Israel. Uh, Nick, as we said at the top of the program, you said that this was the most extensive damage you have witnessed in more than 30 years. Can you just talk about what you saw? Yeah, uh, we drove in along the coast road. We drove several miles in the back of an open uh, Humvee-type vehicle, so we saw everything. I mean, we weren't enclosed in a, in a windowless armored personnel carrier. Um, destroyed houses, destroyed apartments, destroyed villas, uh, hotels that were destroyed, huge tall apartment buildings destroyed, blown apart, burned bullet holes, shell holes. Um, I didn't see any building that wasn't damaged. I didn't see any civilians at all. Um, we took armored personnel carriers to get deep into the city. Uh, we were about five miles into Gaza, really in a, in a heavily built up neighborhood by the Al Rantisi Children's Hospital. Um, there were tank battles. Well, the, the, the IDF tanks were, were firing at Hamas down the streets. It was, it was absolute. I mean, the, the, a war zone doesn't do, do it justice in a way. It was absolute chaos. I mean, everything, cars strewn up the sides of, uh, smashed into the sides of houses, uh, the roads, roads pulverized, every building you looked at smashed, and, and still a firefight going on in this, in, in this urban environment. And again, no people. Um, what about the, the hospital? The idea that, that, that civilians could be moving back in yeah, what, uh, the hospital. Um, so there was a, there still seemed to be something of a firefight going on very close to the hospital, at the front of the hospital. And I asked the commander, why is there such a big hole in the back of the hospital? And he said, look, we got here five days ago. Uh, the doctors uh, were still there. There were patients still there. He said the, the IDF, we couldn't check because there weren't doctors there. The IDF helped the doctors evacuate with the patients. They got away safely. But the only way, he said, for the IDF to get in to the hospital was to punch a hole, looked like by a tank shell, in the back of the uh, of in, in the back of the hospital, and that's how we climbed in and got into the basement, which is which is what he wanted to show us. Look, you know, he was at great pains to show us not just the hospital there, but tunnels that they'd found and the house that he said it had belonged to a Hamas commander. Look, we come into this as journalists, right? And we go in and we ask questions. And I ask the questions that, you know, some people are going to say, is this really for real? And he's like, no, this is what we found. So we can see the, uh, the, the solar panels on the roof of the house that he says belongs to Hamas leader. We can see the cables and we can see them run into a junction box and we can see them run from the junction box into a well-made tunnel shaft that goes down below us. And uh, the, the top spokesman there for the IDF said, look, we've got a robot down there. It's gone down some of the tunnels that are, that are beneath us here. One of them runs to 
towards the hospital. So their point being, and they hadn't proven that link, but his point being that here is a Hamas commander that's got a tunnel shaft, uh, that's got electricity and communications cables running into it, that's right next to the hospital, and then into the hospital where uh, he showed us weapons and ammunition that uh, he, he said Hamas had there. Again, you're asking, we're asking the tough questions. And, and I think we were getting straightforward answers. But again, this is such a contentious issue about the damage to hospitals, about the, about the civilian casualties. Um, when you go into this environment, you really want to press and make sure that you are getting the, the fullest amount of information you can. What we couldn't do was reference it against any civilians that live there or any medical staff because there was nobody there. And what about hostages? Yes. So in the basement of the hotel, what the uh, basement of the hospital, what the IDF was saying, not only was this weapon storage facility belonging to Hamas, but then they took us into another room and showed us a motorbike that had a bullet hole in it. And they said that this was one of the, they believed it was one of the motorbikes that had been used by Hamas on the October 7th attacks. He, and when I asked, you know, how are you going to know? He gave me the impression that this was something that they'd seen through, through observations, through aerial observations. Can't know that for sure. We went into another room where there was a chair and a rope around the legs of the chair and a, women, a woman's dress, it appeared, on the chair and a baby's feeding bottle uh, on a shelf above the chair. And I said, OK, is this what is what you're showing us here proof that there was a hostage here? And he said, look, we can't make that connection. We can't make that uh, uh, assumption. But what we are going to do, he said, because they'd only been inside the hospital, he told us for about four hours, was run DNA tests on, on, that, on that dress, on the rope, on a hairband that was found on the floor there. And then they showed us another area, which, which he said was a guard room. And there was literally a, a schedule for guard duty. This is how he explained it, written in Arabic on the wall, started October 7th, or running through every single day until uh, until uh, November 3rd, every day crossed out. He said that was evidence that that room was used as a guard room by Hamas for, for controlling possibly the hostages. He did not say definitively, and I pressed him on this, that there were hostages there, but he said it was a line of information that they were going to follow up with DNA tests as they exploited mm. the area. But I've got to say, they're out there on the street digging holes looking for tunnels, uh, and, and there, there are gun battles going on around them. I mean, they are, they are so, I think, Desperate is a wrong word, but so clued in that there is so much pressure on them that they really want to try to prove what they already believe and think they have substantiated, um, that there are these tunnels connecting Hamas to, uh, to hospitals. Um, and, uh, but, and they're doing it under gunfire. Mm. Now, if you're really fighting a war, you're not, you're not trying to prove that there are tunnels connecting to hospitals and things like that. You're fighting a war. But they know that international pressure is mounting on them. Yeah. And, of course, that's why they took us there to see all of this. Nick Robertson, appreciate it. Thank you. With hospitals such a focus, wanted to get an up-close uh, look from one of them. It comes from Dr. Tom Potokar with the International Red Cross, who's been treating patients in Gaza at an undisclosed hospital. He recorded these messages for us. So I'm just coming out of the operating theater this morning. We operated on two-year-old who had 28% burns all over his body. We've just operated on a, another lady uh, who has 40% plus full thickness burns. 
whilst we were doing this operation, our theatre nurse, Palestinian theatre nurse, got a call uh, to say that his wife's um, brother and father house had been hit and uh, he just found out that they'd all been killed in an airstrike this morning. This afternoon we operated on a young child, 13 year old, with uh, traumatic head injury, the result of uh, explosive blast, a big defect in the back of his skull, with some bone missing and exposed brain that uh, required careful debridement and then uh, a large flap from his scalp to cover the defect. I'm pleased to say some of the patients have now recovered a little bit, uh, those with the more minor burns, which is reassuring, but we still have many, many, many patients. So another uh, very busy day. Paul, our orthopaedic surgeon, has been busy in the orthopaedic theatre, uh, helping our Palestinian colleagues m manage some of the cases um, currently. Uh, particularly these cases that are, are, are complicated blast injuries with extensive tissue loss and and, um, and bony injury. Unfortunately, today we had to amputate the hand just proximal to the wrist of a, a six-year-old child who'd had uh, very, very deep burn injuries. We were trying to save his arm. Um, we've managed, hopefully, to save his limb. Uh, up until the the hand, but unfortunately the hand was was basically charred and was the cause of ongoing infection, which was making him very unwell. He's still in a very critical condition now. Still, many many burns that we're dealing with and dressing changes. Our local uh, Palestinian therapists are doing a great job getting these patients up and out of bed. So, still relentless, still bombardment every night. One very close, uh, half past one this morning that whistled over the top of the building we're in. Uh, still patients arriving, still inundated with, with um, internally displaced people. So not really getting any better. One doctor's perspective at working in a hospital around the clock. Coming up next, more breaking news. We have new reporting on the FBI investigation into the campaign fundraising for New York City Mayor Eric Adams, focused on campaign money, alleged favors, and possible foreign influence. More breaking news tonight. We are learning more about the FBI investigation to campaign fundraising for the mayor of America's biggest city. Last week, we reported the FBI seized the cell phones and iPad of New York Mayor Eric Adams. He's not been accused of wrongdoing. But tonight, we do have new details on the investigation from CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller, who joins us now. So what, what have you learned? Well, we're told by sources who have been briefed on the investigation that the FBI investigation into these campaign contributions that came from straw donors um, is backed up by the fact that they are, we, we are told, have the records of the checks in the same amounts of the campaign contributions that were then paid back to the employees of a Brooklyn-based construction company that does a lot of business in the city. Mm -hmm. So essentially, a company can only give $5,000, but when you have a large group of employees giving $2,000 each and then they're getting it back from the company... Uh, they found a way to not only skirt the campaign limits um, in contributions, but also get matching funds for those amounts from the city. Why would the company do that? Uh, that, Anderson, kind of goes to the heart of what this case is really about. 
Um, these were uh, a, a construction company that's con connected to a larger construction company in Turkey. It's owned by a successful Turkish-American businessman who supported Eric Adams. But what the FBI is trying to get to here is, is there foreign influence? Meaning, is this just a Turkish businessman that does a lot of business with the city that needs cooperation and permits and things like that? Or is this, and think about the Melendez case with Senator Menendez, rather, right. in New Jersey, where businessmen were working as cutouts to, to get things for the Egyptian government. Right. So is Turkey trying to lure in the mayor of the city of New York, wittingly or unwittingly, um, to get anything as simple as business development um, in New York City for businesses that would benefit Turkey, or more complex, which is investing in a politician who's got ambitions that may National even go to the ambition. White House? So why would the... Why would there be simultaneous searches with nearly 100 FBI agents and then wait a week to, to take the mayor's phone? So there's two potential answers to that. One, they found evidence in the searches that uh -huh. got them to probable cause to get a search warrant for all the mayor's right. phones. Or two, an investigative technique, which is they have wires up, wiretaps on suspects, and they wanted to do something to stir up the pot oh, and, see what and get up. conversations mm, going, um, which would be even more interesting in that they got a search warrant for the mayor's devices to mirror the hard drives, copy all the information. Is it possible that they had a wiretap as well on one or more of the mayor's devices? That we don't know. But tomorrow, he goes before the press to answer questions about this. How tough would it be to get a wiretap on a sitting mayor? It's a significant ask. And to do it, you have to make an affidavit, a sworn affidavit as an FBI agent, laying out the probable cause to convince a federal judge, it would also have to be approved by the Attorney General of the United States, to convince a federal judge that your evidence is strong enough to believe there's evidence of illegal activity on the mayor's phone and devices. Now, we know they got that search warrant, um, so we haven't seen that document yet. Oh, fascinating. John Miller, thank you. Appreciate it. The Supreme Court released a code of conduct today. The question, though, does it have any teeth? That, and will it be enough to save the court's reputation after a series of high-profile news stories about Justices not disclosing gifts and luxury trips. That's next. After a series of embarrassing news stories that allege justices at the Supreme Court, including Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, had skirted ethics regulations when accepting luxury trips and gifts and more, the court today announced a code of conduct. However, critics say the code lacks teeth and does not spell out at all how it would be enforced nor by whom. For instance, Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who sits on the Judiciary Committee, asked, quote, is there a place where you can file a complaint against the justice who sorts out the ridiculous complaints from the legitimate ones? None of that is answered in a code that runs eight pages and is derived from one to which lower court judges are bound. The court also lists no specific restrictions on, uh, on gifts or the code, no specific restrictions on gifts or travel, real estate deals. It says justices should, quote, make a reasonable effort, unquote, to stay informed about the financial interests of themselves and their households. It says justices should not knowingly be, quote, a speaker, a guest of honor or featured on the program of a fundraising event. The code also says the provision on recusal, quote, should be construed narrowly. The code comes months after ProPublica began reporting on the justice's finances, including in its reports were that a Republican megadonor, Harlan Crow, had paid for expensive trips and more for Justice Clarence Thomas. Thomas said the rules at the time didn't require such disclosures. ProPublica also disclosed that Justice Samuel Alito did not disclose a luxury fishing trip back in 2008. He said the criticisms were not, quote, valid. 
joined now by our senior uh, Supreme Court analyst, Joan Biscupig. So, Joan, do these guidelines, do they go far enough to satisfy the understandable criticism that's been leveled? No, they don't, Anderson. But we've finally got at least a written code. So it is the first step in what members of the public, Senate Democrats, watchdog groups, you know, a host of media commentators had been pushing for. So it is a first step. And, you know, the Chief Justice John Roberts had really been struggling behind the scenes to first even get a majority to do something. And in the end, he was able to get unanimity. And I think it's because of the kind of atmosphere you just referred to there in terms of the news stories, the constant drumbeat of can't they have some sort of written rules the way lower court judges have? But the key thing is exactly as you said, there are no enforcement mechanisms in, in what they've presented. And also no way for anyone in the public on the Hill or elsewhere to try to lodge a complaint and have it actually aired in some way. So it's, it's again, uh, the justice is saying, you know, trust us, but I do want to say that at least they've taken this first step. Now, they adopted much of what was in um, uh, the lower court code, but they added certain things that actually kind of, uh, I, I think, were intended to blunt some of the criticism that they have. You mentioned that they say that if there are uh, any ac actions might undermine the judiciary, they added the word knowingly there, saying that sometimes justices don't know whether their conduct might undermine the judiciary uh, or promote uh, uh, integrity. They just don't know. And with sharp disagreements, as the document said, uh, they just needed to make sure they put in uh, that they would only find uh, they, they, it would have to be knowingly disregard um, the judicial integrity and impartiality. So they kind of gave themselves a couple outs in this document, including Anderson. In another one, they said, you know, uh, you know how the court receives lots of uh, amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs that are filed often by business groups and individuals who have connections to the justices. And they said in the in in the cases of these, quote, friend of the court briefs that are filed to back up certain parties in the case, that even if the justices have relationships with any of those individuals, they don't need to recuse. Mm. So again, no enforcement and some new provisions written in that I think were intended to blunt criticism that they've already been receiving in certain instances. So, so I mean, is this, I mean, are lower court judges, do they have higher standards? Right now they do. They do. Wow. Yes, they absolutely do. And the other thing, Anderson, for lower court judges, there are channels that if if you or anyone else has a complaint against a judge, there right. are channels in place that they can those complaints can be resolved with the Supreme Court. There are no such mechanisms. Wow. Fascinating. Uh, Joan Biskupik, uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Anderson. Coming up, uh, that's it for us. Thanks for watching. I'll see you tomorrow night. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. 
Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.